pre-COVID-19, we have been traveling on the highway of life, going at breakneck speed from one place to another, sometimes not even enjoying the scenery. And that's when right before us was a huge pothole. There was no way to avoid it. We smash into it, we get the flat tire, the axle brakes, we veer off the road, and there we are, sitting on the shoulder, not knowing what to do. And in a way, that's how I see what's happened with this pandemic. We've been going along in the normal pattern of our lives. At least that's what we got used to. And there's no one on this planet that can say that their lives haven't been impacted in some way by this pandemic. And as I talk to people, I hear this word a lot. It's a bittersweet time, bittersweet. Of course, it's been bitter. Many of us have lost loved ones and friends. We've been isolated from each other. There's been loneliness, jobs have been lost. Businesses have been disrupted. It's been bitter. And yet I hear this word bittersweet because the sweet end of it is that we now have more time for the things we, all the busyness kept us from, from some important things like family time. I had a friend over yesterday. She has three kids. She said it's the first time in years that they have been able to sit down and have dinner together. It's sweet. And of course, Pastor Carlos mentioned, things haven't stopped here at Christ Fellowship as a church. We haven't been advancing. And I would say that we have gotten even closer to the Lord through our Zoom conferences and various ministry outreaches. It's been sweet. You know, life isn't easy though. We go through these seasons of challenging times, and right now it's a challenging time. And it's times like this that we have to look at who we are putting our trust in. Are we trusting in our power, in our position, in our money, in our talent, in our jobs, in our political party? Or are we trusting in God? Today, we, we start a new series. It's called Trusting God, the Anchor in the Storm. And we certainly are going through a storm, not only the pandemic, but everything else the, in, in our nation right now. And the way to get clarity on how we handle this new normal is we have to look at one part of trusting God is understanding his sovereignty. Now, sovereignty is the Christian teaching that says that God is the supreme authority over all things, that everything is under his control. He's the absolute authority, even when things seem like they're out of control. The sovereignty of God, we have to understand, God knows past, present, and future. There is no before and after with God. There's no temporal or sequential things happening. God knows all things that are happening while they're happening, before they're happening, because God knows all things. Nothing happens without his knowledge or his control.
And all things are either caused by him or allowed by him in his perfect will and in his timing. So when we think of God's sovereignty, we understand there's no such thing as luck or chance. There's no such thing as fate. There's no such thing as random things happening. Nothing takes God by surprise. When everything happens under the sovereign hand of God. So when we understand God's sovereignty, we can trust him that no matter what the circumstances, God is working things out for the good. We sang a song and Pastor uh, Harold introduced it. There are no limits to what God can do. Everything that happens in it. He parted the Red Sea. He made a way where there was none. He provided a cloud covering by day and a pillar of fire by night. He caused a donkey to speak to his owner. He opened blind eyes and unstopped the ears of the deaf. And he even rose the deaf, the dead. He raised the dead. Nothing is impossible for him. He knows all things and he has authority over all things, even death. And as much as science is often at odds with God, they have to agree that God is sovereign over the universe. Science expresses the universe in five terms, time, space, matter, power, and motion. And in the first chapter, in the first two verses of Genesis, we see science affirming God's sovereignty. Listen to this. In the beginning, that was time. God created, that was power. The heavens, that was space. And the earth, that was matter. And the spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters, and that was motion. So the first thing that God tells us in his word is he controls all aspects of the universe. So how does that relate to what's happening with the current pandemic? Where is God in all this? We often, we think, well, maybe COVID is sovereign right now. But here's what we have to understand. The fact that God is sovereign essentially means that he has power, wisdom, and authority to do anything he chooses to do. See, our concept of divine um, sovereignty, we oversimplify it. It's almost like we have a cartoon version of God. We depict a God that must do anything just because he can do that thing. But this is logically false. If I were to get an ant and put it in this bowl. My sovereignty would not be in doubt. I am sovereign over that ant. The ant might want to try to crawl out of that bowl, and it may, I may for my own reasons, decide to let it crawl away. But my sovereignty over that ant still stands. It was my choice to let the ant Go And a lot of times we look at God in that way. It's a parallel to the way we look at the way God is sovereign over man. God has the ability to do anything, to take any action, to intervene in any situation, but he oftentimes chooses to act differently, indirectly. And he allows certain things to happen because his will will still be furthered. God has that right to allow mankind free choices 
And that makes him sovereign even more so. Any power, God is sovereign over all powers. Nobody can stop him. He can't be overcome in any shape, any form. He, you know, but we have to understand, it doesn't mean God must do certain things just because he can do it. You know, that word omnipotence, that means all powerful. God has all power. And yet sovereignty is the other side of that. God has the power, yes, but he decides when, if, and how to use that power. He doesn't necessarily, he isn't the deterministic cause of something that happens. He sometimes allows human beings of their free will to participate and they are the ones that are morally responsible for any evil acts that they do, not God. See, as creator, God has the prerogative to choose how he treats his creation. Think of it like this. If you come to my house and you walk in my house and you say, ooh, I don't like this decor. I don't like the way your furniture. I don't like the colors you painted the walls. I don't like uh, any of the uh, lighting. Uh, your kitchen appliance are awful and your bathroom. I hate the tiles. And I'd have to stop you right there and I'd have to say, wait a minute, this is my house. I paid for everything in this house. So you really can have your viewpoint, but you have no say on how I treat my house. And in the same way, God owns it all. He created it all. When you start creating universes and galaxies, when you can breathe life into every living being, then you can uh, have a say in how things operate, or you can dictate to God how you think things should go. But the Lord speaks through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 45, 5. And he says this, I am the Lord. There is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of the setting, people may know that there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Wait a minute. Did it say he creates disaster? Do you mean God is responsible for disasters throughout history? God is responsible for three and a half years of drought during King Ahab's reign. God is responsible for armies of locusts coming and destroying the crops during Joel's uh, time. He's responsible for invading armies coming and taking the people of God into captivity? Yes, God is responsible. And his ultimate purpose, see, I want to read in Isaiah further down in verse 9, it says, Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds, nothing but potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say the potter has no hands? Potsherds, those are pieces of broken clay. That's what he's saying. He knows, he is the potter. He knows before he even forms it, what purpose will come from the vessel he's forming. 
And I believe he creates disaster. Oftentimes he allows the disaster, like we're going through right now, to turn the hearts of God's people back to him. And God determines the outcomes. When we look at today's circumstances, we wonder, is, can this possibly be God? But when we look in the Bible, we see things that look really bad. And, and we wonder, is it really God? We can look at some biblical examples and, and we can see things that went from bad to worse to terribly worse. And it seems like expectations were dashed and hopes were deferred. But it helps us to look back at these biblical examples because the people that were going through it didn't know the end. We can see the end. We know the why all these things were happening. And the first example I want to give you You're probably familiar with this. There once lived a wealthy, peaceful, God-fearing man named Job. Everything was going well for Job. He had a great family. He had livestock, which was a, a sign of great wealth. He loved the Lord. He worshiped God. And I want to read from Job 1, starting in verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none on the earth like him. He is blameless an upright man who fears God and shuns evil. Does, and here is Satan, does Job, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, very well, then everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And scripture tells us that Satan wanted to test Job's faith. He wanted to bring tragedy into Job's life so that Job would deny God. And, you know, if you look further down, you see this permission that was granted brought a lot of trouble. In a single day, Job received news that his donkeys, his oxen, his camels were stolen. Many of his servants were killed. His shepherds and sheep were burned up in fire and 10 of his children, he had 10 children all dining in one house. A storm came and the the house collapsed on top of all of his children and they all died. It was a time where Job could have become bitter and angry, bitter towards those who stole everything and bitter toward God for allowing this to happen to his family and property. But instead, here's what Job said. In verse 20, at this Job got up, he tore his robe, shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. See, he had the right view of God's sovereignty. Even though all of these calamities came, he was trusting in God to be the anchor in his life. And of course, we know to add to his suffering all over his body, he had sores and, and even his wife told him in, in verse um, chapter two, verse uh, nine, 
Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. And he replied, are you, talk, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Again, Job had an understanding of the sovereignty of God, even when his friends later on were trying to figure out why this was happening to him. And they were pointing to him and saying, you must have done something to deserve this. It was your sin that brought this on. And later on, his conversation with God brought him an understanding that there was something immeasurably greater in the picture here, that God was in control, that his life, Job's life, was just a small part of something much greater. And of course, the end of the story, we see Job's life. He was restored back to health and wealth, births of 10 more children. And in fact, the Bible says, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. He chose to bless him in that way. He is the anchor in the storm. You know, Job's story can bring us comfort in our suffering because it showcases God's faithfulness and his trustworthiness, his ability to glorify himself, even in times of testing. Because when Job was in the middle of the test, when he was at the worst point of his test, he said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. He trusted him. You know, there's a modern day example of, of a woman of God. Her name was Corey Ten Boom. She was a Dutch watchmaker and she and her family hid Jews from the Nazi party because they, were, uh, they felt it was God's will. And because of this defiance, they were imprisoned and later uh, internment in a, in a concentration camp. And finally, members of most of her family died at the hands of the custody of the Germans. And if anybody had a reason to be bitter, it was Corey. And yet when she, later on after the war, she advocated for uh, forgiveness as a means of reconciliation because of the scars that she suffered. And countless thousands of people were impacted by her testimony as well as her book, The Hiding Place. If you, if you haven't read it, you really should pick it up. But here's a quote from that book. This is what kept her. Never be afraid to trust in an unknown future to an unknown God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. She knew her God that he was sovereign. She couldn't understand why these things were happening, but she trusted in him through this storm. Another example in the Old Testament, we look at Genesis 37. It's a story of um, Jacob and his family. And we pick it up in verse two. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpha his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Well, there we see some problems right there. There's family dysfunction, there's several wives, and he's tattletaling on his brothers. Let's pick it up in verse three. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his own 
old age, he made him an ornate robe. And when his brothers saw that his father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So now here we see sibling rivalry. We see the jealousy. We see the family dysfunction. We see the favoritism of the father. But Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheave rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. And his brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream. And he told his brothers, listen, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon, the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Your mother and I and your brothers actually come down and bow down to you to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in his mind. See, here he was. He was the favorite son of Jacob. Joseph had dreams, and he knew those dreams were from the Lord. Everything seemed to be going so well for him. He felt that the dreams were from God, but he did not expect his jealous brothers to capture him, sell him as a slave. And the slave traders took Joseph to Egypt, where years of slavery culminated in a false accusation where he was imprisoned. Wherever he went, the favor of the Lord was with Joseph. He could have become bitter toward his brothers because of what they did. He could have been bitter because of the injustice of the imprisonment. But instead, he worked diligently, and he grew in wisdom and responsibility, and he trusted in God as the anchor in his life. And he became second in command to Pharaoh. Amazing. He coordinated the efforts that would sustain the nation as well as many other people in the seven-year famine. And through this experience, Joseph learned to see his enemies, even his own brothers. Even though they had evil intentions, they were still instruments in the hand of God. Not only did Egypt was Egypt spared, but many other nations, and ultimately his own family. When Joseph's brothers traveled to Egypt, they found food during the famine. They repented of their evil. They were reconciled with him. They were reunited. And we see Joseph explain the key to his forgiveness. Joseph said to them in verse 19, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended... If there were a room full of people, I would ask you all to repeat that. God intended. He intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. In this story, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel story. Here, Joseph was also mistreated. He was imprisoned. And here he was elevated to the highest place next to Pharaoh. He brought salvation to his family. And he brought a place of safety. 
Joseph trusted in God in his trials. He had the godly perspective. He was able to discern God's purpose in all the events of his life. He made the best of it. He made lemonade out of the lemons. And when things look the darkest, we have to trust God. Again, Corey Tenboom says this in her book, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, don't throw away your ticket and jump off the train. Sit still and trust in the engineer. Are you trusting in God to fulfill the purposes through your pain, through these circumstances, through the darkest moments, in the most difficult times, during this pandemic, during our quarantine, during this time of national unrest, painful circumstances, through them all, sovereign God is there. And he has a greater perspective on the entire situation, past, present, and future. From the eternal vantage point, God sees it all. And I like to compare it to the way if we're flying in a plane, we have the vantage point where we can see mountains and rivers and lakes and highways from up there and beyond and for miles ahead. But if you're driving in a car and you come to a mountain and you see a detour sign, you don't know what's over that mountain. You just in obedience and trust, you follow the detour sign. In the same way, that's, we need to trust God. We may not always know the why, but we trust him because if you went over that mountain, there was an impassable river because a storm knocked out the bridge. So think of all that time you would have possibly been killed if you tried to, to, to pass the river um, or all the backtracking in your journey, the time you would have wasted if you didn't heed that detour sign. Detours are divine direction corrections. I'll say that again. It is good. Detours are divine direction corrections. Sometimes God allows the distress and the circumstances to detour us and to steer us back to a new normal. And I believe that COVID-19 is one of God's ways that's steering us back steering the hearts of God's people back to him. Now, there's another story in the Old Testament, the book of Ruth. It's a short story. The setting starts with a very dark and difficult time for this family in the land of Israel. God seems to be silent. The message of this book is that God is at work, even though he may seem to be absent and not in control. So the the setting is in in the town of Bethlehem, Uh, Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their two sons. There is such famine in the land. They decide to leave Bethlehem, which means house of bread, which is a whole nother story. Why would you leave a place, a house of bread and go to Egypt? That's where they decided to go, which is really a type of oppression and slavery and sin. But they go there in the hopes that they can uh, ride out this famine. Well, things go bad enough with the famine and the move. Within a short time, her sons marry. And unfortunately, before any of them have children, both of her sons die. Her husband dies. She's left 
with her two daughters-in-law, and she decides, I'm going to go back. And Ruth, who's a Moabite, decides to go with her. Now, look at this picture. Things were bleak to begin with. There was a famine. Then the worst thing that happens, her husband dies, then her son dies, her both sons die, and then she returns empty. In verse 19 of the first chapter of Ruth, of Ruth, let's read it. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. Can you imagine the gossip, the stares that these women got? Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. No, Naomi means pleasant. That's what her name means. Don't call me Naomi. She said, call me Mara because the Lord Almighty, notice, She's attributing the reasons why not to call her. The Lord Almighty has made her life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted. She's, he has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem, as the barley harvest was beginning. Now, this was perfect timing for God. And although Naomi was very discouraged, and she understood the sovereignty of God, she understood and attributed some of these, all of these things were from God, but they weren't hopeful. Her trust in God and his sovereignty wasn't hopeful. But let's read on. In Ruth chapter 2, now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she gleans in all fields that she could have choose. She chooses Boaz field. Now, Naomi thought she was empty. She had no idea that sovereign God was working behind the scenes in the opposite way. In the middle of their loss, he was orchestrating an amazing plan that generations later would affect all of humanity because through the union of Boaz, who she would marry eventually, and Ruth, came the offspring, and through the generations, eventually Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Boaz was the kinsman redeemer, and Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. When it seems like God is turning against us, he's really creating foundation stones for greater happiness. Naomi lost her husband and sons. Ruth lost her husband, and sovereignty of God is sometimes very difficult. God allowed Naomi and Ruth to experience bitterness. But they never doubted that God was involved. Remember, they said, the Lord did it. The Almighty has done this. Every part of our life, we have to know, good or bad, he gives and he takes away. He allows viruses and he removes viruses. He sends a famine. He brings plenty. For Christians, this book of Ruth represents the coming of the Messiah, who is going to liberate all of humanity because his mission was to restore humanity. It was to buy back with his precious blood all that was lost at the fall. 
Jesus calls us. He is our kinsman redeemer. He calls us his brothers, his brethren. Now, life has been bittersweet these last several months. One day, everything's going great. Like you wake up on the top of the world. Everything is great. Your health is great. You have a wonderful job. You, your marriage is going great. Your kids are good. You know, everything seems so good. You're on the top of the world. And then with a short, within a short period of time, everything changes. Everything. That's the potholes. But when you have a sovereign God, that means the negative and the positive wasn't by chance. That tire that got flat on the way to your interview that you were banking on, that this was the job of a lifetime that you missed. Was that part of God's sovereign plan? And it's exciting when you start to believe that because you know that God has something else for you. Sovereign God. We can say, God, all right, I don't know, things are not the way I planned. Do your thing. Do your thing. Everything is in your control. Everything. Even the bad. I know I had friends who were lost. Even the bad. When you bake a cake, you have some great ingredients. And some of those ingredients all by themselves taste delicious. I love honey. I can take honey and eat it by the spoonful. Sugar. But then you have other ingredients like baking powder and baking soda that are horrible. They taste terrible by themselves. But you put them together in this mix and you put it in the blender and you mix them all together. And then you put it in the oven and you turn up the heat. And then the aroma fills the air and you take that cake out of the oven. Something even better than those ingredients by themselves comes out. Can I hear an amen? <laughs> comes out very good. It was worth the wait. Well, God is making a cake in your life. He's taking the good and the bad and he's putting it all together in the mixer called life and the Holy Spirit is mixing it all together. And when he's finished cooking you through these various trials and circumstances, he's gonna bring you out so good. That's what Romans 8, 28 says. All things work together for the good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. God's will be done in your life. Do you trust him? to be your anchor. One final case I want to bring up, the Jewish leaders envied Jesus Christ's wisdom and his popularity. They didn't believe he was the promised Messiah. They devised a plot to falsely accuse him. They brought him to trial. And after a mockery of trial and justice, cruel beatings, appalling indignities, and eventually crucifixion, we can see that things were pretty bleak in the flesh if we look with our temporal vision. Jesus lived on this earth acquainted with grief and sorrow. In our limited perspective, we couldn't understand what was happening. The road to Calvary was a display of things not going well. Good Friday wasn't so good. The disciples who walked with him for three and a half years, they were not, this wasn't all part of their plan 
for ministry success. They probably thought, this can't be God. It can't be part of the plan. Jesus could have looked at his enemies as merely men carrying out a wicked plot, but instead he saw them as human agents that were used by God to accomplish God's bigger purpose. Because the purpose, then came the empty tomb. Living proof that Jesus, who is God, who is sovereign over all things, even death, his mission was accomplished. That's why in Hebrews it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew that he had been sent for a purpose to offer his body as a pure sacrifice to pay for the debt of man's sin against God. The wicked actions of these enemies enabled him. Do you see that? God allowed these human agents to enable him to fulfill his purpose, redemption. And that's why he was able to say, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. God is able and is sovereign and is working through the trials and the pain to fulfill his purpose in your life, in this country, and in the world. When you experience suffering, you can respond to God because he works all things together. In 2 Corinthians, he says this, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not destroyed, always uh, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Verse 17, for our light and momentary treasures are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So fix our eyes not on what is seen, not on the pandemic, not on the unrest and the injustice. Fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is seen is eternal. Sovereign God, trust him to be the anchor in the storm. He is in control. And, you know, sometimes I had a discussion um, in preparing for this. Sometimes people say, well, if he's in control and he knows everything, then why bother to do anything? Why bother pray? Because he's going to do it. Well, I want to tell you, God specifically invites us to pray both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I can give you example after example, but I just want to point out a couple. God hears and responds to prayers of his people, all according to his perfect will. Here we look at an example. When Hannah was childless, okay, and we see she cried out for a son in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 10. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, give her a son. And then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. No razor shall ever be used on his head. And the response from God is verse 20. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and she gave birth to a son. His name was Samuel because she said, because I asked the Lord for him. It was her prayer. In the New Testament, 
you can go home and read the whole passage, but it talks about in the books of, book of Acts when Peter was released miraculously from prison. How did this happen? How were the, the doors of the jail unlocked and the shackles broken off his hands and the heavenly angel escorts that led him out of that jail and to the very home of those who were praying for him? The prayer meeting was going on, praying for Peter, and he was released. See, the best way to illustrate this, and I'm a mother, and I know what it's like to have a sick child. You might have a sick child, and you tuck them in at night, and you know in the middle of the night that they're going to need you again. Okay? But you go back to bed, and you wait to hear that cry, mommy, and then you go and attend to your child. You already determined ahead of time what you were going to do. You already uh, purposed that you were going to answer that call. And in the same way, everything is under God's control. And he has determined what he will do but he's decided that he won't do certain things until we make it a choice to pray. God has determined what he's going to do ahead of time. But he's waiting to hear us say, Daddy, Abba. He's waiting to hear the cry, the prayer, to do the thing he already determined to do in his sovereignty. He gives us the privilege to participate within the sovereignty, not to determine the sovereignty. That's why he calls us in Second Chronicles to pray. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. This is God's sovereignty. He allows us to participate in it. Do you trust him? Do you believe that he controls all things? When you're looking out there and you see what's happening in so many different levels, are you trusting him for the outcome? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've learned today that you are the absolute ruler and controller of all things, God. And Lord, sometimes when we're in the middle of it, just like Ruth and Naomi, things look bad and they even get worse. But we know with confidence that we can trust you, that you are working all things behind the scenes in such a magnificent way that we can't even understand. Thank you, Lord, for giving us an a, a opportunity to be a part of it. God, thank you for even, I thank you even for this quarantine time that we have been able to tenderize our hearts. You're trying to draw the hearts of your people back to yourself. I believe that's one of the reasons you allowed this COVID. And Lord, let it be that as your people humble themselves and pray and truly seek your face, that they will say no to evil. They will turn away from hate and the wicked ways. 
they will humble themselves and pray and seek you like never before. In Jesus' name, amen.